This week on the NetApp Tech on Tap podcast, we have a full house in the studio to talk about object storage and how NetApp IT is using it. Welcome to the Tech on Tap podcast with Justin Parisi, Glenn Sizemore, and Sully the Monster. I love NetApp. Oh, yeah. Hello and welcome to the Tech on Tap podcast. My name is Justin Parisi and sitting right next to me is... Andrew Sullivan. And I mean right next to Justin. This is really uncomfortable. Like, he is in beard length from me. It's it's kind of weird. Uh, we got a full house today, which is why Andrew is sitting so close. Um, in the studio today is Object Storage with Duncan Moore. Uh, storage Service Design Team, Evan Miller. And also Stetson Webster and Eduardo Rivera from the NetApp IT group, as well as uh, Stephen. Uh, Stephen, you're going to have to help me pronounce that last name there. Uh, Pruchniewski. Pruchniewski. There we go. Oh, great. All right. So we're going to go around the room and start talking. We also have Glenn here today. Hey, say hi, Glenn. Hi, Glenn. <laughs> you're not an afterthought. You're just on Skype. Yeah, sure. Yeah, not an afterthought. Just after everyone else has been introduced, not an afterthought. Introduce yourself. By a technical definition, yes, you are an afterthought. Thank you very much. <laughs> Semantics. All right, so we're going to go around the room real quick and talk about what everybody does here at NetApp and what we're going to talk about today. So we'll start with Duncan Moore over there. He's who's playing probably look, is it Angry Birds you're playing? <laughs> no, playing Microsoft Excel, unfortunately. Oh, that's, my, that's my favorite game. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, so I'm, I'm Duncan Moore. I'm here out of RTP with NetApp, uh, going on 17 years, and I lead the product management and technical marketing teams for object storage at NetApp, which is Storage Grid Web Scale. Awesome. So uh, before I go any further, did you know in Excel there's an Easter egg where you can actually play Donkey Kong? I did not, but you'll Donkey just have Kong. to, yeah, have to send me the link. It probably doesn't work in the Mac Probably versions. not, but I've, <laughs> I've, I've heard and I've seen... Uh, Examples of this, so that's pretty cool. All right, moving on now. Stetson. Yeah, I'm Stetson Webster. I'm here in the RTP office of NetApp. I'm a storage architect, NetApp IT. All right, and Eduardo. Well, this is Eduardo Rivera, RTP as well, also a storage architect, NetApp IT. Evan Miller. And hello, this is Evan. I lead service design at NetApp. And Steven Prishnuski. Hi, I'm Steve. I'm a tech market engineer also in the RTP office, and I'm on the storage grid team with Duncan. Awesome. So if some of these guys may sound familiar to you, and if so, that's because they have been here before. Stetson and Eduardo and Evan and Duncan have all been on the podcast before. If you want to find our episodes with them on it, look up techontappodcast.com. Okay, so what are we going to talk about today, gentlemen? So, Justin, if you remember, uh, a while back we brought in... Uh, Evan and Stetson and Eduardo and team, and we learned all about the the, the storage design uh, principles and and the work that that the, that these gentlemen do. You know, walking around or traveling the world and, and helping uh, customers categorize their data and then you know come up with a, a, a business model and a plan about how they're going to offer uh, storage as a service out into an enterprise. Well, what, when they were on last time. If you remember, we learned privately after we hit record and, and, and we published the episode uh, that the reason that everybody was in town is because they were actually going through that process for object storage. And as I understand it, uh, they've, they're, they're ready to actually share. 
uh, with what they've learned and, and what's come out of this. So, so that's what we're going to do today, man. We're going to pick that apart. We're going to learn all about what it's like when you categorize object storage as a service and then bring that into an enterprise IT portfolio. So to get started, let's talk about how you're using object storage. What are you doing with it? So I'll talk a little bit about that. So we are built, we built a storage grid web scale infrastructure that uh, geographically spans RTP and our Sunnyvale data center and soon our, our Oregon data center. Uh, but I guess the, fir the first tenant of that uh, infrastructure is really AutoVault. So, so we have a big uh, push to move our tape infrastructure to AutoVault and then the, um, the backups up to the cloud, which in case is storage grid web scale. But, um, but that's just sort of like step one. Beyond that, we're also working with several teams to integrate things like um, Docker repositories, uh, Elk. Uh, uh, there, there were some other application teams interested in exploring S3 as a, a as a storage target for some of their the stuff that they're building. So at the end of the day, we're just building a object storage infrastructure that we didn't have before, right? When we did NF we we have NFS, uh, iSCSI, all that kind of stuff, but now we have ob object storage. So can you give an example of one of the primary use cases that people are using object storage for, just in real general terms? I know we don't want to give too much away, right? Well, no. So so, so today when you go and build, no, let, let me take it back. If you if you build applications in AWS and you're, you're boring the cloud, as they say, uh, your object uh, your object um, options are, or sorry, your storage options are, are limited, right? You either do the EBS uh, block or you do the the object uh, S3. A lot of that applic all those applications are, of the type that they, they're not running a database necessarily, but they're just using the repository as a big uh, uh, repository of unstructured data, right? Uh, one of the examples of something that could be uh, using that is something like uh, auto support today, right? We, we ingest a lot of data from all sorts of uh, systems around, around the world. We store that data somewhere. It's all unstructured. It's, it's numerous and large. And although it's not using it today, that would be an example of an application that could be moving in that direction. Now. Other than that, again, we were talking about right now about uh, Docker and things like that that have facilities to use object repositories behind them. Um, and that's that's really kind of the, the first step there. So it sounds like in, in this process where we are very early on in, in the steps, which, you know, of course, right? I mean, it's this is early days for everybody in this business, especially uh, when we talk about um, this next step in the evolution. Uh, but... but it, so we we got that up and running in two sites. Eduardo, can can you just kind of touch on a little bit what that was like for you and your team? You know, a, a shop that is very familiar with data on tap, obviously, and e-series and traditional you know storage services. Uh, actually, bringing in and, and standing up storage grid web scale and multi sites, and then you know making that that pivot and that jump. You know, how hard was that for you and your 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 team there? So. Yeah, it's, it's interesting you mentioned that we come from ONTAP and other traditional storage. This is uh, it's very different, right, from, from standing up a filer. Uh, the difference, really, I guess uh, it's, uh, it's just not just standing a, you know, a storage device. It's more like an infrastructure, and, and that includes, like, you know, SSL certificates and, you know, the storage appliances themselves, and you have this uh, gateway and this admin node. But... The, the biggest, I think I'll say that the biggest uh, hurdle that we had is really kind of navigating our own internal operational processes when it comes down to like uh, uh, creating the, 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 the network space where it's all going to live, make sure that we had the connectivity between the sites that we need and that kind of stuff. But once all that's settled and we, we kind of neg negotiated those operational challenges, the deployment itself, it's, it's, it's pretty straightforward, right? It's, a, it's well documented. It's a matter of running a, a set of scripts in the, in the right order, the appliances themselves 
pretty much come up configured. You plug them in, make sure that you can connect it to the network, and you know you get uh, this little web page that that says, uh, you know, plug in my IP address and this other tool to deploy. So it wasn't. I'm not going to trivialize it. It wasn't simple, but it wasn't simple because of the 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 uh, the, the operational challenges we navigated when it comes down to building the right network infrastructure to support it. But the the actual execution of it was was pretty straightforward. And 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 subsequently, we also upgraded it to. Uh, I forget. I think initially it was like. 10.0. I think we went to 10.1, and the upgrade was pretty easy too. Well, I, I think I think another part to 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 the complexity, if you may, of deploying it was that the biggest thing is that it's really not as complex as we think. So as 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 as, as traditional storage guys, you know, you, you're looking for you know performance tiering. You're looking for how you're going to to configure the system and architect the system and the storage grid. A lot of these these things really don't exist, so to speak. It, it's really driven by completely different designs, um, requirements, and 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 configurations. So I guess it, it th that was a big hurdle for me is to like you know to think that Stetson it's really not as complicated as you're expecting it to be. That that was interesting. Stephen, I'm curious. Does that uh, flush out with your experience? You know, traveling around and talking to customers and helping them make this pivot into object is is do we often have to get people to just take a step back and realize that it's just not that complicated? I think so. I mean, at least once it's deployed, right? It's it's pretty easy to consume. I think just the big part is kind of first doing the, the homework these guys have done where they're thinking about how many sites uh, we have, where the data is going to be ingested, where it's going to be retrieved. And, and then you kind of realize, you know, once you've laid that groundwork, then it, all that goes away. You've got that one common namespace. So now all these applications just need that one access point and, and they're in. The more interesting part is going to be when we set up those ILM services or ILM rules to determine, uh, you know, kind of the different SLAs uh, or, um, you know, different levels of service, right? So that, I think that's kind of interesting. And I'm, I'm curious to see how these guys uh, put that together, right? So that was one thing. So the planning we've done has been, you know, what levels of service will we provide and how we, uh, you know, provide that charge back to the customers. Uh, ILM, help me out there. That's a new acronym to me. So we call it uh, integrated lifecycle management, meaning that from, from ingest uh, of the document or object all the way through disposition, we control that. So you get to control, uh, you know, if there is storage tiers, you can control that. But also, really, it's about locality. So let's say maybe our Oregon data center is the lowest cost storage. We may choose to keep more data there than, say, in, in Raleigh, just because it's cheaper. So all that's transparent to the user, but we can create rules that will dynamically move data around. And it can be changed, right? So if we make a decision, you know, let's keep everything in Oregon, and then six months from now we decide, well, that wasn't the right thing to do. It's really easy for this team to change those rules and then either reevaluate it or, you know, make another change that it can run by. Um, it can be automatic, or again, we can push it off. Interesting. So Stetson and Eduardo, you know, I'm 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 curious about those points. Where where are we with the ILM part? Because I could see how that would be just the entirety of the challenge, and I suspect that's where we're going to spend almost all of our time talking to Evan here in a moment. Um, how did we end up breaking that down? Are we using that policy engine as part of you know the the, the storage service that we're offering out into NetApp? We are, we are, and uh, so that's uh, I, I said we we start with two sites, um, and that was intentional. And really, again, the the idea is to go to three sites, and the reason for that was really around the the concept of the ILM, right? So so by by default, right now, what we're doing is that every time you write data to one of those uh, 
devices on one side is being replicated to another device in a different site. So we have this sort of a uh, geographical um, dispersed uh, data for for you know data durability uh, you know, purposes. But beyond that, you know, we, we're going to try to expand that, those ILM rules, not into a whole bunch of them, honestly, but just sort of try to keep it simple. But but somewhere where we have a choice between you know, local replication, remote replication, or no replication, or some combination of them. And the reason for that is really more about uh, the economics, right? If, if you have something temporary that you're going to write to an object store, you don't really want to protect it, well, then why replicate it? If you have something that's really important that needs to be replicated, well, let's replicate it off-site somewhere else. And that's, you know, there's a cost to that to that replication. Uh, but, but yeah, so, 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 so the whole infrastructure is designed with uh, ILM policies in mind. Uh, but that said, we also, as I said, want to keep those policies somewhat simple so it's easy to manage. Yeah, that's that's honestly my favorite part about Storage Grid. It always has been. It's the thing that 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 just caught my attention from day one when I first read about it. Um, it's, it's the policy engine underneath the covers, right? It's the ability to just throw data at it and then tell it how you would like that data to be handled over its life cycle. And the, the system just, in, it just handles it, right? To not have to take on that burden of, you know, who, there's a person and that person has to do that job. It's, it's, it's always been my favorite part about it. Sadly, it's still the thing that I haven't had a chance to play with myself. So I'm still sitting here green with envy that, that everyone else on this call has. Well, one thing I'll add about Storage Grid is that that, that you just mentioned, the, the fact that you don't have, a, um, I guess, a excessive tuning of the system. It's, uh, it, it, it's not, on, not only a characteristic of the ILM. It's really a characteristic of the system itself. So, so you, you were asking about challenges earlier. The other challenge is moving application developers that are used to enterprise SAN, NAS, to a more like self-service environment where I'm just giving you an account within Storage Grid and you write your data, you sort of match your own data the way you want it. And I, as an administrator, I only care that there's enough capacity in the pool. I'm not really creating volumes or exports or things like that. I just give you a point of entry and an account, and, and away you go. So, so it's a lot simpler from a matching point of view, but it's also a departure from traditional storage deployments. Oh, interesting. So so in the, the offering inside NetApp IT, so you know, I'm, I work on the FlexPod team. If let's say we decided that we wanted to consume object storage for some internal process. Is there now some portal where I can go get an API key and just start dumping data into S3 buckets on, on a NetApp premise storage grid appliance? There isn't yet the portal, but exactly what you describe is the end goal. Right now, the portal is me. <laughs> I've been working with several uh, account uh, application teams to try to give them some some uh, some accounts and and trying a few things out there. But uh, we do have an initial. I mean, we have a, what we call the NAR private cloud, and there's a portal to that, and that you know allocates resources from you know VMs and things like that. Yeah. We'll be adding this to that to that portal eventually. Duncan's been just raring to go here, <laughs> wanting to get in. Where should I start? Uh, I I won't rewind too far. I I, I don't want to glance over the comments that you just made about how in more traditional, I would call them kind of platform two applications, the storage administrator and the IT infrastructure team has to do all of this planning about how is this storage actually going to be provisioned. And you said in this case, you're just giving keys and mm -hmm. credentials. And, and I want to make sure people understand the reason for that is 
because Storage Grid takes care of all of that internally, right? It does its own load balancing. It provides its own level of durability so that, you know, hey, uh, you could bring storage nodes down for maintenance. None of your applications or users need to know that. It's just all automatic. And, and that's one of the reasons we're seeing things move into this new Platform 3 type architecture. You know, along those lines, Duncan, I, I got to ask you, you know, in the industry, and, and, and Stephen, please ch chip in and give us your thoughts here as well. Uh, when people talk about object storage these days, you know, they, they, you often hear the argument, you know, flash and trash, you know, or something similar to that. You know, th this whole idea that there's really only two tiers of storage these days. There's the stuff that has sub-millisecond uh, latency requirements and then everything else where the only thing you're concerned about is the cost. Uh, but but I really think that there's another side of the object storage argument, which is the manageability side and the fact that, that object storage systems just fundamentally have a different scale point and they have a different manageability point. And you're able to put petabytes under the control of a single person where that's kind of complex to do with traditional arrays. I'm curious, uh, both of you, just your thoughts about is this really about cost or, or is there something to the management of it? So, uh, yes and yes, right? I mean, the management and the simplification of it translates directly to the cost. That is one of the reasons object storage is significantly cheaper. It's not because we use trash hard drives or, you know, refurbed equipment or something like that. It's, it, it's all enterprise, top-tier infrastructure. But because of the points you made, you know, Petabytes can be managed by, you know, a, a number of administrators that could previously only manage terabytes. That's a huge cost savings because of what we talked about a moment ago about the inherent durability of the system. You know, it's no longer backed up by traditional IT backup and management tools. That takes another layer of cost out. Um, so I think there's a lot of things about manageability that contribute directly to cost. Now, to your point about flash and trash... Um, I prefer to say uh, performance tier and capacity tier. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But, I don't. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Full disclosure: I hate the term "flash and trash." I, it, I, it's it's but it like the worst part of El Reg, <laughs> but it took yeah. off. I, but I, I don't like it. But it's there because it rhymes, <laughs> more <Yeah>. or less. <laughs> so I think though it it ignores it, it from a from a single data center perspective where I'm racking things up in my own IT enterprise. I, I think. You could make that very simplistic flash and trash kind of statement, but it ignores something that object storage provides that is far different, which is that stateless cloud storage service um, that, that isn't captured by that statement. It, object storage is the enabler for cloud applications, regardless of what the media is underneath. I mean, I suspect we're going to continue to see um, flash deployed even in object environments. It's it's not an issue that object is just for slow. Um, it increasingly is. It's it's a target for these types of applications, regardless of their performance characteristics. When we say uh, stateless cloud storage service, or, or is that really? Are we just saying that like object storage is how clouds store persistent data? Yeah, and I think if uh, so, the people that are listening that are just coming out of school with degrees in computer science and, and you know, uh, information management studies or, or whatever the degrees are called these days, all of the application development work that they've done in the last few years has been in this disconnected cloud model, right? I mean, we don't have people writing 
SAN block-based application data management stuff anymore. Um, the ability to have, when, when I say that, it, it's the ability to have the application logic um, not care where the data is being stored, to give the IT folks sitting across the table from me the flexibility to put that data wherever it makes sense, whether that's an economic choice, whether it's a data stewardship choice, whatever the case may be. And, and that's something that isn't captured in the flash or trash, right? Yeah, this, this is something that we see on the Docker side of the house where a lot of the modern or, or I guess the in vogue terms are like microservices, right? And if we look at microservices and the stereotypical 12-factor app, you know, there is no data persistence associated with the application itself. It comes from, you know, object storage, which is provided as a service, or it comes from database storage, which is provided as a service. It's not necessarily a part of that application. So it's definitely one of those things that's becoming more and more prevalent as uh, applications mature, as development thoughts uh, continue to progress. Yeah, but it doesn't to say they'll replace it, right? It's, it solves a different problem, right? It just brings a, a it's, it's another protocol, right? It's just like sometimes you want, you need SIFs or NFS or iSCSI or Power Channel. Uh, storage, uh, storage grid and, you know, S3 APIs and Swift and all that kind of stuff. Uh, uh, it just solves a different problem, right? Absolutely. So, Eduardo, getting back to NetApp-IT's internal implementation of Storage Grid, uh, it, we we lead, we we kind of gave off or gave this away at the very top. But it sounds like initially our our primary application target for that storage system is AltaVault. So, so we're looking to just move backup data initially, uh, and and just get that on. But but I imagine all this other stuff that we're talking about. I mean, that's why we would go through the process of standing up internal object, right? Yes, yes, yes. So, so Altable became, I would say, the catalyst to accelerate our deployment of storage grid. But it's not by any means going to be the only tenant, right? Uh, it really is, uh, uh, the way I see it, you know, a year down the line, there'll be all sorts of applications using that, that grid for different purposes. Steven, uh, could... could I'm curious just because now I've got a TME uh, attached to storage grid um, on the podcast. Uh, could you kind of give us your thoughts around that? Like, is, th is this a common, is, is, is the way that NetApp ourselves are going through this process, does this align with what you see with customers? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think we've known for a while that the backup applications would be the first use for the cloud. And for a long time, we really had to to give an example application to get people to understand what object storage was or what it was good for, we would do the, uh, the weekly demo series calls and there just would be kind of silence until you would get to the partner deck or the, you know, here's AltaVault. And people go, oh, that's what I can use it for. And mm -hmm. now more and more we don't, people come in knowing what they want to use it for. But, but yeah, backup is the first, uh, the first use case. And AltaVault just makes it really, really easy to consume and deploy. So it's a great combination. And I'm very excited to have, you know, a customer one story because we've got customers who are rolling it out, and then it gives you that one more kind of re level of reassurance when we can tell our customers, you know, this is the product that we use internally as well. What about the uh, what about the file system bridge? Are we are we using that anywhere in in the design or playing with that anywhere? Not at the moment. Not not in not in our environment. Uh, you know, frankly, not not just because we're not really at that point. We're really trying to put uh, the multiple data into it. Work with the first few. Uh, you know, native object uh, applications out there, and then we'll see where it goes. It's not it's not off the table. It's just we haven't gone to it yet. So, let's talk a little bit about what a file system bridge is, because some people might not know what that is. So, what is that? 
that that so, that so, my friend is the awesome product that Mr. Duncan came on and announced on a very podcast. Oh yeah, on the ago. podcast. But if you haven't listened to that podcast and you're listening to it now, we want a refresher. So Duncan, could you tell us? Yes. So uh out-of-the-box storage grid web scale has historically spoken object APIs only. So uh, we've already talked about on, on this podcast S3 and Swift as being the two, you know, prevalent object APIs um, and has not had the ability to speak traditional uh, file APIs like NFS or SIFs. There is a market out there of these devices that we would call um, cloud uh, file system the other ones we usually call gateways. Gateways, right? cloud gateways. Yeah. That's what I was looking for, right? And and a cloud gateway you can think of as something that presents SIFs or NFS to a set of consumers, and it speaks an object API to some backend object store. So we purposely did not call this capability that we launched a, a cloud gateway because while it does that at the highest level, it prevents, presents SIFs and NFS out the front and speaks object out the back. It does it in a fairly unique way um, that solves another set of problems for traditional IT organizations that might be moving from file to object workloads. And, and what it does is it preserves what we call file-to-object duality, and, and that means when you put a file into the file system bridge, into a directory, it becomes an individual S3 object on the back end that can be retrieved later either back through that same bridge or as an S3 object directly out of the object store. And this is something that other cloud gateways do not do. And, and you know, there, there's a reason they don't. And, and the reason is most of these cloud gateways, they don't, they don't know what's behind them. They don't know what that object store is that's back there. So they have to make oh. assumptions that it's, it's crappy and it's far away. <laughs> so hmm. they're going to take all these files and they're going to munge them up and do all kinds of storage efficiency things. And by the time it gets to be in an object in the object store, it, there's no resemblance to the initial file. There's no way to get it back out except for through that path that came back in. And in fact, that's what AltaVault does, right? AltaVault does that because it derives, it, it delivers a ton of value by doing that in the form of storage efficiency, right? Because it's doing inline dedupe and compression and encryption. But, you know, when you think about that, if I'm doing inline dedupe compression and encryption, that thing that gets put into the object store doesn't look like that file. So, you know, we see opportunities where people are deploying the bridge for some workloads and they're deploying AltaVault for others. Largely, AltaVault is used for backup and archive target. The bridge is used for what we would call active archive targets, um, where it's more of a continually referenced, potentially moving from file to object. And I know that was a big, long mouthful, but... That's okay. It's, uh, so essentially, I'll, I'll do like a short definition, exactly what it sounds like. File system bridge, right? A bridge of file systems. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, well, well, I do, And there's no toll. It's not a toll bridge. It's part oh. of the product. It's free. You don't so have to pay So it's not a turnpike. Yeah. <laughs> the... Well, I think the word bridge there is the most important part because it is, as Duncan just just you know reminded everybody, we do maintain that one for one relationship. You know, there, we talk to a lot of customers with some really cool workloads, uh, and 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 you know, 
a lot of the archive requirements. You know, Eduardo was just talking about uh, auto support and, and our own internal kind of big data warehouse requirements of, of massing just huge amounts of, of, of data over very, very, very long stretches of time. You know, right now they sit in proprietary systems. But if, if we all look at this with a futurist lens, we can all admit that object is the long-term solution or long-term solution for something like that. The problem is getting in between where you are today to where you want to go tomorrow. And I, I'm really hot on what the bridge does because you can take those applications that just speak NFS or SIFS today and just not touch anything. Just change the share or mount point that they're using for that archive copy. And, and it will just, on the back end, it'll just start saving them in object format. And then in the meantime, you can go through that heavy lift process to rewrite the application layer. And, and when you finally get that done in five or seven years, because that's not going to be a quick effort, well, the data has been archived in that format. So, so it gives you a tool to make this pivot you know, as an industry, which I, I think is incredibly valuable and, and, and why I personally was, was really excited when Duncan joined us to share the product. That's also why I asked if we were using it, um, because the, the use cases where I can internally think of, you know, wow, I'd like to, we need to get an NCloud account and start consuming this. They, they almost all involve transitions like that. That's a great point. We just had a, a large uh, proof of concept with an organization that's tasked for keeping information for pretty much ever. And you think about some of the hesitancy that people who've worked at this organization in the past have had about digital formats. This really helps, right? Because they're much more comfortable putting in, you know, billions and billions of objects. You know, today they still need SIFs and NFS, but they can already see what the transition is to the next generation. And, and that just helps. It really tears down barriers, right? So I think that's important. So, so Evan, what are you seeing in terms of the service design workshop with object storage? Like, what sort of uptick are you seeing? Are people interested? Absolutely. Uh, just like uh, object store as a technology is very, very different than file and block services on data on tap, for example, or E-series, um, object has a different service level definition profile. In storage service levels, we're talking about, you know, I need something really slow and cheap on SATA versus something really fast and, uh, and high performance and low latency on SSD. Uh, and regardless of availability, durability, all the other illities, um, it's performance <laughs> that really defines the difference between service levels on ONTAP uh, or any other file and block system. On Object Store, performance is not so much the focus. Um, and cost isn't so much the focus. It's really policy. That's going back to that ILM conversation. Um, what really becomes the differentiator is the number of copies, where the data is placed, and the retention profile. Now, let's stop for a moment and look at Amazon S3. Amazon S3 has really three service levels. It's got Glacier, which is very, very uh, low cost, but the SLA for availability or, or uh, retrieving that data can be hours. It might take hours for them to actually retrieve the object you request, right? And that's low so cost clearly, for storing, right? Not for retrieving. Yeah, exactly, yeah. right? If you want to actually use the storage, Glacier is the wrong place. Um, it's for putting it somewhere for a very long time. Uh, and then there's the reduced redundancy service and standard. S3 standard is it's going to be on two sites, right? Very high availability of that data because you know it's in two different places so that even if you know one data center completely blows up, I have it somewhere else. 
And RRS, Reduced Resiliency Service, puts it in only one facility, right? So now let's pivot to an enterprise use case. Enterprises um, not only have that number of copies uh, kind of difference and where the data is located, but retention may also be a key issue. So when we looked uh, at this problem with NetApp IT, we found they had the same kind of, of differentiator that uh, S3 users on Amazon want. They want maybe two copies versus one copy. And then there's this notion that some things may actually need to be retained for a briefer period of time. And so here's an area that's probably going to need some, some study because what we concluded is most users of NetApp IT's object store are going to expect that data to be there forever. Uh, but we put one service level in there called Scratch, where we said, well, let's, let's experiment with a service level that only keeps it for a month um, and see if there's a need for people to do test and development or other use cases where there's a shorter use case. I suspect maybe there'll be some evolution over time where other retention periods might get built into additional service levels. But for now, it's either forever on uh, one site or two sites. That's the default service level is forever on two sites. And then there is a reduced resiliency service, which is forever on one site. And then there's a scratch service, which is let's, let's keep it for just a month on one site. That's where I really want to drive costs down to the absolute bottom. And then there's an Alta Vault service level where we assume they're going to want forever on two sites, but the ingest point isn't the uh, S3 protocol directly. It's going to be through Alta Vault file or block. Uh, or, or NFS gateway. So um, those are the service levels we came up with initially. This is going to be a really interesting experiment to see if that's good enough or if customers of this service are going to want different uh, policies for retention or maybe other variables. Performance might come along someday, you know, because some people may expect higher performance. Um, we'll see. But uh, this, is a, this is a great um, first um, try at a set of four service levels for NetApp IT to offer. What do you think, uh, Stetson? Yeah, and one of the things that we also discussed was that, um, you know, when we start doing reporting and, 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 the, and the showback on, on the cost of the storage, um, the users that are showing, you know, this, this, this forever um, retention on data might um, want to self-select some of that to um, you know for you know scratch for example so that they can impact their department cost so that's what we're counting on so the default is exactly like what they get everywhere else um you know almost forever but then um for those that want to have a positive impact on their bottom line for their department they might just self-select scratch and there might be regulatory reasons why maybe not NetApp, but perhaps our customers might say, well, you know, I've got a regulatory requirement where that, that object needs to disappear at a certain time point, right? And that would drive a different kind of a service level where there's a specific retention period. So I'm curious, you know, since, since we just went through this, this uh, exercise to, you know, turn this into a service where it can just be consumed and we've got all these various different buckets, which, by the way, gentlemen, is my favorite part about this exercise because I, I, I think this is how you bring costs under control. You can't do it from the top down. You have to do it from the bottom up. You give them the tools and then you just tell your workforce that we need to save some money and they'll do it. Right. If, if you try to find those costs at the top, you almost always end up hurting your organization in the long term. 
Um, so how do we manage those knobs? Because although we're dealing with with a system that that has this uh, inventory lifecycle management, you know, built into it, there are a lot of knobs and there are a lot of options. You know, how, how do we how do we educate the customer base and what these mean and 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 help them with that consumption? So yeah, I'd say oh, uh, to, to jump into that question. <clears throat> right now we've got forever and we we put a, a service level out there called Scratch that helps them shorten retention and, and shorten cost. There may be in the future where somebody wants to keep three copies out there um, you know, for more cost, but right now we've assigned a, you know, a pretty, this is going to be a pretty cheap service. I mean, on the order of a penny a gig for a single copy and maybe two cents a gig for a, a dual copy situation, which is well under what Amazon S3 would charge um, if, if, uh, if NetApp IT was actually going to show back the cost of it. Um, so the, the cost levers really are number of copies and retention, right? The shorter you keep it, the cheaper it gets. If you keep it forever, that's a very long-term commitment. Um, so those are, the, those are the two primary cost knobs that object stores are, are using in the industry. So if I'm a customer, how do I get in touch with somebody about getting a service design workshop? Yeah, I'd reach out to me, Evan Miller, um, or... Uh, or contact your account team. Uh, internally, our account team has the ability to reach out to me as well. And uh, so that's probably the, the key way to do it. Go through your NetApp account team, ask for a service design specifically for object or for um, um, file and block storage or for data protection. Yeah, and I know we've covered it before in other shows, but it's always good to hammer that point home. Fantastic. All right, Evan, thanks a lot. So if you want to get in touch with Evan Miller, you can get you can reach him at evan.miller at netup.com or Evan C. Miller at, on Twitter, so at Evan C. Miller. Eduardo, how do we get in touch with you? Uh, at uh, Mr. Ed Rivera on Twitter. Uh, or I guess you can email as well, eduardo.rivera at netup.com. Okay, Stetson? At Stetson Webster on Twitter or stetson.webster at netup.com. Glenn, did we get any emails this week? Uh, we did. We well, did. We did. We did. We yeah, the, the, you know, I don't know really where to start with this one. This one's kind of heavy. Uh, it's 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 really complicated. It goes into some pretty sensitive subjects. But so I guess I'm just going to read it and and we'll 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 deal with it. Okay. Well, who's it from? Uh, it's from a Mr. Paul Hargraves. Har Hargreaves. 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 Yeah, I'm not quite sure how to pronounce that. Um. Anyways, he Paul writes. Hi guys. With all the beard talk, I thought it would be appropriate to ask my question. What length of beard would you recommend that gives the best blend between ease of maintenance and the, quote, cool factor? Any maintenance tips you can think of to simplify that, quote, rush out of the door while still looking groomed look would be much appreciated. Regards, Paul. You know, I, I don't... That's a really complicated question. It I is. Mean, I, I, you know, I would go inch. with I would go with the age old answer to every performance question of it depends. It's seasonal. In the winter, you want a nice bushy beard, right? You want something to keep your face warm, keep the chill off. Especially Andrew when he goes out to Canada. Uh, oh no, I have an easy answer for this. It's called whatever my wife approves. Oh well, that's different. Yeah, so, actually, that, that is the real answer. Uh, just look at your significant other and go, is this still okay? <laughs> Some of us have problems when we grow our beards too long. They start to look like other body hair parts of our bodies. So um, keep that in mind when you're growing your beard out. You, don't yeah, wanna... you need to put some of that beard oil in it. <laughs> you need some beard oil, yeah. some pomade. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe trim yeah, it a little I, uh... bit, you know? you know. 
Try not to look like the parts of a body that you don't want to look like. <laughs> now I'm having uh, flashbacks uh, to the to the military where you have to have personal grooming discussions with people about. You had to have personal. Yeah, when, well, it's, yeah. when it's appropriate to bathe and <laughs> the oils. The oils really help. They can they can they, they keep the beard hair from getting really stiff. The other thing is when you use the clippers. Uh, don't go up like when you're shaving. You go down because you're just trying uh, to get the beard yeah. even. You're not trying to get the hairs even. You don't yeah. care if they're different lengths. You just want them to look even. Just want them to look even. It's an illusion. Yeah. Just an illusion. All right. I think that's enough beard talk. Paul, hopefully we helped you out there today. <laughs> I don't know why you're emailing the Tech on Tap podcast for beard talk, but screw it. We all have one. We'll we, get into it. We could we could maybe send them a guest beard or something. I don't know. That'll help. Maybe. Uh, uh, Eric, can shave a little bit of the beard. Collected and <laughs> we could all donate parts yeah. of our beard. No, no, yeah, that's no, just that's weird. creepy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, <laughs> flying crossed. Yeah. Land this plane, Justin, quick. All right, all right. That music tells me it is time to go. If you'd like to get in touch with us, send us an email to podcast at netapp.com or send us a tweet at netapp. As always, if you'd like to subscribe, find us on iTunes or SoundCloud or via techontappodcast.com. If you like the show today, leave us a review. On behalf of the entire Tech on Tap podcast team, the Storage Grid team, the NetApp IT team, and the Service Design Workshop team, thanks for listening. That was a mouthful. It was a full house today. Oh, yeah. It was a full house. I can't tell you how confusing it is to listen on Skype but talk into the microphone. Yeah, that was weird. Because I'm hearing myself with a good two-second delay. Glenn probably didn't feel the effects because he's not in the is studio. Just me he's he's remote. On this? But oh, I don't think yeah. we've had that many people in the studio ever. And whenever we bring these storage service design guys in, they always bring their posse. <laughs> yeah, we, tra- we travel in packs. Right? You do. You do travel in packs. <laughs>